0: Unwrap your gift now, but pay later. Right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin.
1: Put no money down, no payment, and no interest for up to 18 months. Our elves work year-round, installing in as little as a day. Offer ends December 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Good
2: afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome. This is one of these segments again where I don't think anybody's going to be happy with what I'm about to say because there will be people on one side who will hear one thing and people on the other side who hear the other things. But, you know, I call them like I see them. Here, here, is, here is the deal. I think the response of the Capitol Police yesterday was was appalling. And I think it is very, very fair to question why was this allowed to get this far? Especially when we knew that there was a large group of people who who were coming to Washington DC and large groups of people descending on Washington DC is is nothing unusual. There are demonstrations in Washington DC all the time. What was unusual yesterday is that the demonstration got so out of control And that the police, the Capitol Police, were so ill-prepared to deal with this. So that is a very, very fair question. How could this have been allowed to get so out of control? Now, having said that, I I, I was just listening to President-elect Biden saying, well, you know, if this was, if this was a Black Lives Matter protest, this wouldn't happen. To which I, I would say, uh, Mr. Vice President, uh, Mr. President-elect, did, did you watch what happened in Kenosha, for example, last August when you saw, again, what turned out to be started as a social justice protest where quickly it got out of control? Or, or do, were you not aware that, for example, there was, there was widespread looting and burning, for example, in Kenosha? Did you not pay attention to what's been going on in, in Madison, to give you an example, where for a couple nights, essentially law enforcement allowed protesters to, and again, I'm separating protesters from the the violent mob, just like you had a violent mob that was in D.C. yesterday. You had protesters slash the mob that was destroying statues and burning buildings. Have you not been paying attention to what's been going on in, say, Seattle or uh, what went on in Minneapolis or what went on and continues to go on in Portland? So this idea that, well, um, this was something unique by the law enforcement's failure to respond, I I just, I, I do find that a little bit head scratching, which isn't to endorse this at all. Here's what I think happened yesterday. And in many respects, it is similar to what happened in Madison this summer. And what happened in Kenosha, let me use the word reminiscent, because some people say, oh, well, this was a little, this was different. OK, let me use the word reminiscent. What happened, let's say Kenosha, the first couple nights of the riots in Kenosha, what happened was law enforcement was overwhelmed. And when I had a chance to talk to the Kenosha County Sheriff David, Beth, that's the first thing he said. They had a spontaneous outbreak after the, the Kenosha incident. They had this spontaneous outbreak and, and they were just overwhelmed. There were more protesters slash rioters slash members of the mob. And again, I understand you separate between the legitimate protesters and the people who were there to to burn and destroy. But they overwhelmed the police. The police response, the law enforcement response was not adequate. And to the texter who says, well, how, how come you haven't called out Democrat governors? I, I, You've got to listen to the program. I think Tony Evers, one of the low points of the Evers administration, has been his failure, was his failure to get enough National Guard people authorized and get them in place and empower them to get control of what happened in Kenosha. But the cops were overwhelmed by the the size and the degree of violence in the demonstration to the point that for their own self-protection and interest, that they weren't able to engage the mob. And then what happened is, a couple of days later, once they finally did have enough for civilian control, what ended up happening was that um, then you, you had the the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world who decided that we need our own militia presence to come. And we all know how that turned out, whether he's convicted or not. We all know that the idea of 17-year-olds running through the streets in those situations with loaded firearms, nothing good is going to come of that. Same thing was true in Madison. You had, I think, the the police that were ill-prepared and undermanned for the, the rioting that broke out. Same thing I think could be true of some of the early stuff that went on in Minneapolis. Seattle's a little bit different. Portland's certainly been different because we know that that's been going on for a long time. But I think what happened yesterday at the Capitol in Washington was in part a reflection on the fact that there was just not adequate resources. They failed to anticipate what was going to happen, and so they they got overwhelmed. That is a legitimate criticism of law enforcement. A second very legitimate criticism right now, Now is, why were there not more arrests? And for the record, that is a question that I asked last summer about what happened in Madison. That was a question that I asked about what happened in Kenosha. Why weren't there more arrests? It's a question of what I've asked on multiple occasions about Wauwatosa, where you had a number of the things that occurred, including going out to the girlfriend of the of the cop's house and and shotguns going off and all that destruction i think it's been fair to say all along that the law enforcement response in general to a lot of this civil unrest has been we we don't want to We don't want to make things worse by going in and starting to arrest people. That is a philosophy that I have never bought into because I think it enables people. And and yeah, just like I wish they would have made, I cannot look at that violence that went on Kenosha or in Madison and understand why there were so few arrests that were made. And I also can't understand how looking at what happened yesterday, how you can only have like, the last number I saw was I think 54 arrests or something like that, that Part of it is that the cops were overwhelmed, but part of it is they did not treat the protesters aggressively enough. I guess that that's my thought on this. I think what's happened over the last several months, regardless of what the nature of the protest is, protests on social justice issues, protests about the election, all these things, I think in many cases law enforcement has been ill-prepared for it. There's really no excuse that they were ill-prepared for what was going to happen yesterday because you knew a large group of angry people were going to be descending and so there, there should have been more of a police presence. There should certainly should have been more arrests. I don't know that it's necessarily that unique because we've seen other examples of that this year, but one way or the other it, it's it, it's time for this stuff to stop. And at least in Kenosha, I understand why the first day or so, the, co- the police were overwhelmed, because it was a spontaneous protest. They didn't know it was going to happen. And the, the mob got to Kenosha before the cops could. Yesterday, Yesterday, they, they should have been able to anticipate it. Okay, those are some of my thoughts. I, I think that, I think law enforcement does have a lot of explaining to do about why it was allowed to get as out of control yesterday. And again, this is you can say in Kenosha, hey, we're not used to having you know mobs descend on us. In in Washington D.C., like I say, large scale protests happen on a regular basis. What doesn't happen? typically, is that the protest gets as out of control as it got yesterday. All right, let's start with Marcus on the north side. Marcus, good afternoon.
3: How you doing, Jeff? Uh, this is an easy subject to talk about. Hopefully a lot of your listeners uh, that are, are with the Trump uh, people are protesting. But here's the deal. We knew back in December from intelligence that this date, January 6th, that was going to be an issue. Trump broadcasted it. He stated that it's, it, it's going to be an issue as far as to block the, 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 the electorate as far as being that done. Okay, given that intelligence, even more so, as we led up to that massive date yesterday, the moment that Trump announced when he did his speech, before he said, I will walk with you up there to the Capitol, the National Guard and other enforcement agencies to sure reinforce the White House at that point. Now, Trump, of course, he incited the right, so I don't care what you say about that. But the Capitol Police at that point, and thank God for Mike Pence what he did, as far as having, because Trump, he failed in his duties to authorize the National Guard to be there. But prior to this, they they knew that this was going to happen because you had objections to the election Mm -hmm. at this point. We knew doggone well that this was going to happen. This is not a spontaneous thing, not like Kenosha. Where that just popped up out of the blue. But you had advanced warning for over two weeks. Now, the White House, at this point, you can verify this, at least with D.C. at this point, they've shut things down at this point through the inauguration. Thank God for that. But at this point, I think that the police should be armed. There should not be an issue why police cannot be armed at the White House because they have police guards at the
2: banks. When you go to the bank, there are certain armed guards. Okay, well, let me stop the you bank. there, Marcus. I mean, you... you... You're not advocating the police shooting the protesters slash rioters, whatever you want to call yesterday. I mean, you're not making the point that gee, more people should be shot, are you?
3: No, I'm not making an advocation that more people. Actually, the, the woman that got shot, she got what she deserved. I don't well, feel sorry for that because she was in the U.S. military and yeah. she pasted posted things about hints on there so people can look it up. So that's fact. So I'm not stating something that's not factual. But what I'm saying is that if were black people, they would have opened fire. It would have been a bloody Wednesday yesterday. So let's
4: stop playing Well, well, well wait, well, why, why, why here. Here.
2: But while you say that? But we've had, we, we've had social justice protests all, all over the country. And in many cases, some of them have devolved into violence. And you don't have police shooting people on, on the streets. I mean, you didn't have that in Wisconsin. You haven't had it in Seattle. You haven't had it in Portland. I mean, I, I think... The police, I think, in general, have shown a lot of restraint, arguably maybe too much restraint. But thanks for calling, Mark. I guess I'm kind of troubled by this idea that you should be shooting people. And, and if it were black people, they would be shot. Well, no, you, you, you've had, like I say, social justice protests all across the country. And police haven't opened fire. It's I think we learned something maybe after Kent State with the National Guard back in 1970, which isn't to say that I think the response has been adequate or, or accurate. And I do think, Marcus, you make a point which is a point I was trying to make as well, that Kenosha, Madison, for example, these were situations where it was, it was a, I think, a spontaneous thing, spiraled out of control, and they didn't have advance notice sufficient to recognize that this was going to happen, and it took them a while to get law enforcement in. I do think it is a very, very fair question to say, knowing what the potential for this was, why wasn't there a much larger police presence? Jeff, did you want the Capitol Police to use water cannons and rubber bullets and and what else? Well, I I wanted the Capitol Police to have enough support from whether it's the National Guard or whether it's other law enforcement agencies to be able to stop people from, for example, getting into the, the, the Capitol. You know, let let let's have a couple rows of police with the riot gear or whatever, so you're not going to let just people walk in and, and be able to get there. I, I think that there is there there is a medium between saying here pull out rifles and start shooting people in the crowd and here just let people do whatever they want. There <laughs> there there is a there is a medium that you can find, and they failed to find that yesterday. Jeff, she got what she deserved. Um, yeah that okay you have a woman who' shot yesterday I, I still the, the, the by the police that's going to be the subject of of a lengthy investigation I think there's going to be legitimate questions about whether it was necessary to shoot that woman under those circumstances and I've been trying to stay away from that because we don't know all the facts but um, we, we can't be shooting rioters we can't be shooting looters we can't be shooting protesters that's that is not um, Jeff This is completely different. This is Capitol Hill where the government was in session. Um, I think um, if they were black, a lot of people would have been shot. Well, I I guess people can think that. Again, I, I think law enforcement in general, in dealing with these situations, has, all across the country, has shown great restraint in dealing with all sorts of protests. I'll be the first to tell you, though, I think that there was too much restraint yesterday. And that's not saying that I think people should have been shot. That's crazy. That's crazy. But there needed to be more of a police presence. And like I say, I think it's fair to ask the question, knowing what was going to be going on, why weren't people more prepared? Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ.
5: Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Um, my thoughts are that
3: there should be there should be a lot more arrests and have people pay these fines and use those fines to pay for the damage and on top of that these people that are arrested should be given like cleaning supplies and rooms to clean up their mess after them and for the Capitol, yes there should be more police uh, presence there i think that's one of the things that you should never ever have people be able to get into the white house that's ridiculous um uh,
2: yeah or into the cap I, I don't yeah. know
3: what the, i don't i really don't know how much sports you have to have there but there should have been more
2: well I, oh absolutely no, th- thanks for calling and of course there, there's there's oh if this was you know this type of person that type of person everybody would be shot no but but what see that that's and again i i understand that kenosha is different than wisconsin than washington i i get it but in kenosha The cops were overwhelmed. And so they they fell back into a defensive position and essentially lost control of the streets. Yesterday in Washington, D.C., the Capitol Police were overwhelmed, essentially fell into defensive positions and and did did nothing to restrain people. And I mean, I'm, I'm. I'm not advocating, of course, coming out and shooting protesters or shooting rioters or or whatever. You you don't, we don't do that in this country, and I don't think we would have done it if it was a different type of protest either would there have been more use of tear gas to disperse people i, I think that that's that's fair i don't understand how the protesters slash mob whatever you want to call them i don't understand how they were allowed to get as far as they got because once once they got up on the veranda once they started getting into the building then you, you really had a heck of a mess
1: jeff wagner's 25 year career at wtmj comes to an end For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: Obviously, a big portion of the show today is going to be devoted to the coronavirus, not not everything, but this is affecting daily life in so many different ways. As a matter of fact, there's a number of different steps that people are taking or not taking. And I want to, over the course of the next couple hours, discuss our reaction to the coronavirus in a number of specific areas. I want to start with the idea of schools now what's happened is the vast majority of colleges universities have decided that they are either going to cancel classes suspend classes or suspend in-person instruction the idea being all right we're going to shut down for a little bit and then what's going to happen is we're not going to have the classes we're going to try to continue to teach programs online and and that's true in Wisconsin, and it's true uh, across the, the country. I was telling a story yesterday. My niece is a junior at San Diego State, and and they've they've essentially said no live instruction for the next couple weeks. We're going to try to do these courses online. That that's their reaction to it. But I I think that's probably pretty consistent with the way colleges and universities are handling things, which is no more in-class in-person instruction at least for the immediate future all right that that's all well and good at this point in time though and as a matter of fact i think the governor during the his just announcement declaring you know a, a statewide health emergency one of the things that they are not at this point in time doing is recommending that schools, and I'm talking about elementary and secondary schools close. No suggestion that, you know, a a particular middle school, no suggestion that high schools, no suggestion at this point in time that school districts close the schools. Now I I throw this out there for the purpose of, of discussion. If we are concerned that, hey, you've got college campuses And admittedly, in college campuses, you've got commuters, but you also have lots of kids that live on the campus. But if we are concerned enough to close down public and private universities based on a fear of the coronavirus spreading, should we be doing the same thing with public schools, elementary and secondary? Do we have something, Eric?
6: Yeah, we have some breaking news from ESPN that after a conference call among owners this afternoon, Major League Baseball is expected to suspend spring training... And the league will likely delay the beginning of the regular season as well. At this point, it's a formality that ownership-level sources expect to happen, then according to ESPN's Jeff Passon. So as of now, they are expected to suspend spring training and perhaps delay the start of the Major League Baseball season. We expect to learn more as the... uh, Hours move on here as Major League Baseball tries to figure this out.
2: Okay, we'll continue to keep you updated. Right now, the aspect of coronavirus that I want to talk about is, should we be considering, should we be closing elementary and secondary schools? I mean, and I guess my question is, if it's good enough to do for colleges, other than the fact that it would be a huge inconvenience for parents, should we be doing this for grade schools and high schools and middle schools? Let's start with Jamie in Waukesha. Jamie, you're first. Hello. Hi, how are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, should we be closing kindergartens and first grades and eighth grade classes?
0: You know, I have to be honest. I think that with spring break coming up so soon, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to just close the schools through now, now through spring break. My kids um, are going to be on spring break in a week and a day. They're counting down, <laughs> and um, I just got a call from my daughter uh, who's in middle school. I got a call earlier this morning, and they've been instructed to clo- uh, clean out their lockers and bring everything home. And apparently, the rumor is is that school will be closed tomorrow to disinfect. To
7: dis- now dis- I don't
0: know. I don't. Yeah, to disinfect, and I don't know if that means that. It's possible that, you know, they haven't raised the red flags yet to close the schools next week or what, but I just kind of, I'm preparing myself. Now, I'm a stay-at-home mom, so, you know, it's not going to, you know, be... Right. horrible to have them home but i do feel for all those parents who work and this is just going to be so difficult if they do close the schools.
2: oh for but any I length the of time of things
0: too. yeah okay right,
2: so okay right. so if you were the king you were the queen i'm sorry you're the queen you're getting to make the <laughs> you're you're getting to make the the decision based on what we know now uh, obviously a, a a very contagious virus not hitting wisconsin at this point in time in massive numbers but still a cause for concern all right, would you order the schools closed for the foreseeable future?
0: You know, I, that's, that's a really tough call. In, in my situation, being a stay-at-home mom, I wish they would just close them. You know, yeah. kids are a loose cannon, and you can tell them to wash their hands and wash their hands and wash their hands. But I don't know what they're doing at school. You know, as soon as they walk in the door, it's hand sanitizer, wash your hands, keep your hands off your face. But you know, in the end, if we can if we can slow the spread right. and you know try to get a, a hold on you know what can be done to treat it better to stop the spread, then what's what's it going to hurt if we if we call them you know right. spring break is right around the corner anyway.
2: Okay, thanks call it Now I have an opinion on this, and I'll share it. But I, I am I'm genuinely curious as to what your reaction is and how. How you are responding to all this information that's out there. Here's a text, Jeff. What are all the parents supposed to do? You might as well shut down everything then because parents aren't going to be able to work in order to take care of all those kids that won't be going to school. In college, the students aren't affecting their parents by staying home. Okay. And, and I, and I appreciate that. That, that's true. There, there's a bigger ripple effect. But at the same time, I guess the flip side would be if our justification for closing the, the colleges and universities is, we, we don't want this thing to spread, and we don't want more people to get sick, all right, is, is the college-university experience, is that different than the K-12 through experience, and are our concerns different? Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, and today's one of the, uh, I have to look at the calendar, this might be the last weekday um, home baseball game outside of holidays and stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm done about 1230. I'm going out to Miller Park because if you happen to be there, I'm going to be doing one of the, the games that they do, like the, the Know Your Numbers game sometime between the third and fifth inning. So as soon as the program is done today, I've got to scoot out there. Well, anyhow, I was at Miller Park last night. No, I don't take any responsibility for the six to three loss, but, but it was an interesting experience that just reinforces to me. The fact that, Eric Bilstadt, we have become complete and total weather wimps around here. (laughs) Just just absolute weather wimps. Now, let me back into this story, okay? My first Green Bay Packers game, back in the day, I was not at the Ice Bowl, but I was at the game in Milwaukee County Stadium, the game before, playoff game against the Los Angeles Rams, um, where they won, and then they went on to the NFC Championship game against Dallas. And it was cold. I, I mean, I rem- I'm i 10 years old. I remember sitting out in the bleachers mm-hmm. in one of the end zones, freezing, absolutely freezing. But if you're going to be a fan, you you sit there. Now, I remember County Stadium. Okay, cause the first, you know, 25 years of my being a Brewers baseball fan. I mean, I remember being at County Stadium. I can remember being there in April and in May and in September when it was cold. I can remember being there one opening day when there were snowflakes that started to to fall. Matter of fact, my my late wife is sitting next to me, and once the snow starts coming down, she says, are we having fun yet? Which was kind of the key to uh, us leaving. So I mean I remember that that type of weather and you know what we we went through it. I can remember even you know working at WTMJ here some of those uh, those opening days where it was cold brutal, and it's yeah. rainy and brutal and we're out there and fans are out there and we're we're just all right it it's tough. We're tough people. And somewhere that went by the wayside. So last night I am at Miller Park, and I have a 20-pack a of season tickets. My, my dear friend Evan and I, we, we, we go to the games together. Our seats are behind home plate, first level, like the 19th row. So we're, as it turns out, I've never really thought about this before, but we're apparently, I guess, undercover. We're far enough back that there's some cover. So we're sitting there watching the game, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and all of a sudden, I, I see people start running. I mean, running from from the front. They're they're running, and and I'm trying. I thought there was a bomb. I thought there was a shooting. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. They're running, and it's not just Cardinals fans that were being wimps. It was Brewers fans. They're running. We're going. What the heck is going on? Well, then you start noticing that it's raining. Now, okay. The, the guy that closes the roof, apparently, you know, the story is that the radar was down, and so this was this pop-up shower. But, I mean, it's it's not like, hey, Noah, get ready to build a boat. It's a pop-up shower. Now, so it I mean,
6: wasn't that hard? It wasn't too strong?
2: Well, well it was... Oh, okay. It was it was intense, but you know it was just like a, a like a, a summer, like a summer squall. Okay? So you think rained- they
6: should just sit in that? Is that what you're saying? Well, absolutely. they should
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, these, these people are just freaked out. Oh my gosh, it, it's raining. We've got to run up. I mean, yes, and they were very very wimpy, and it's like, and then people are cursing. Whoa! I mean, all these people are screaming about the roof and how terrible this is. And I'm going, it's it's just a little rain, and it's over in a couple of minutes. Yeah. The umpires didn't even leave the field. I mean, the umpires sent the teams into the dugout because maybe. Maybe they were afraid the players were going to melt. But the umpires stayed out on the field. But the bottom line is, I'm watching all these people, and they're sprinting. They're just sprinting to the back. And I'm thinking, I mean, it's not like it's thunder. It's not like it's lightning. It's a little bit of rain. They could have clearly... Played through that if they chose, and, and you're kind of watching the roof close. I mean, yeah, so slowly, you're, you're, yeah. yeah, but but you're only going to be out there because you know what does it take? Like ten or eleven minutes for the roof to close. Right. So you, you know you're going to be out there. It's not going to be that long. It's trying to close, and and as it's closing, more and more people are undercover People were, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking County Stadium. I mean, <laughs> again, I I can remember these games at County Stadium where it would be pouring rain and it would be 35 degrees. And they'd be playing through this, and fans would
6: sit there. But now that we've gotten this roof, no, we've just become weather wimps. Did the crew go out there and redo the diamond at all afterward? Yeah, no?
2: what they did. Well, what they did is, you know, they got a tarp there. Yeah. They, they didn't. They, they didn't, didn't bring out, out the either. no. They didn't, well, because right by the time you get the tarp out, the the roof is going to be closed. They had um, a crew that came out, and they had that diamond dust, that drying stuff, and they put it on the mound, you know, which okay. is what yep, yep, you know, yep, yep. which is which is what they did. But um, but. But again, it, and I, if you want to see a picture of it, I, I'm taking a picture. I'm at the game, so you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Wagner 620 I've got a picture of the roof as it's starting to close. But people are just running, and I, I'm thinking, huh, how times have changed. Oh, my gosh, we're going to get a little bit wet. And I, I was actually surprised that they pulled people off, I, that they stopped the game. I mean, it was... You, you you watch a lot of these games, and they play through a lot harder oh, yeah. rain, yeah. knowing, and here you knew that the thing was ultimately going to get covered. But I'm thinking, man, for those of us who remember the days at County Stadium, how times have changed. Oh, there's a little bit of rain. We've got to run and get undercover and things like that. So in any event, it, it was kind of an interesting experience. Um, Brewers game delayed because somebody didn't close the roof before the rain hit. I, my, the category is oops, but... Boy, we have just collectively, collectively become weather wimps, no doubt about it. All right, when we come back, there is a huge controversy we will discuss. Stick around.
6: Hey there, Eric Bilstead here. Jeff Wagner, my goodness, congratulations. I've known you a long time, been able to work side-by-side side with you for a couple of decades now, believe it or not. In fact, the very first time I cracked a mic on this very radio station, you probably don't even remember this, you were on the air. It was a Saturday. Saturday. I was producing, anchoring, and you were doing your show. It was such a great time then. It's still so great to hear you on the air now. Congratulations, buddy. Much love to you and the family and to Fran. And hit him straight. Yeah, we're getting funky. But it's not funky music. I'm
2: talking about the comic strip, Funky Winker winkerbean. Now, I... I- I freely acknowledge that, and we talk a lot about the demise of newspapers and things like that, but i I firmly believe and i 've said this before that for parents out there, one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is the gift of reading. I, I think that you know if you can inspire in them a, a love of reading, that 'll take them a long way in life and i i mean i I grew up I make no pretense about this. I mean, I grew up as a kid I, I started out reading comic strips in the newspaper and I graduated to comic books and I used to collect all the comic books and read these. And, and, and then, you know, from comic books, it, it led to reading other stuff. And, but I, I have this passion for reading that, that carries on to, to this day to the point that in, in any given week, depending on what the books are, I, you know, I, I read two or three books, you know, a, a week, or at least I, I try to, and not every, some of them are just like light popcorn books, but, but it all started by me reading comic strips. And that's, that is actually something that has continued to this day and as part of my regular routine in the morning when I sit down and prepare the show one of the things I do is I I'd read them online nowadays but I have there are about 10 or 15 different comic strips that, that I read and you know several of them are in the local newspaper and you can you know download them when you go to the uh, through the internet one of the comic strips that I got into a long time ago is is a comic strip called Funky Winkerbean, which it, it, was, it was started in the early 1970s, and it, it focused on uh, kids that were in high school. And I was in high school in the 1970s, and I, I've been reading this for going on 50 years. And then what the artist and the creator has done is at a couple of different times over the years, he did what they would call time jumps where all of a sudden he would just advance the storyline 10 or 12 years. And, you know, with the idea that, gee, I'm not going to keep the characters, I'm not going to keep the characters as children or high school students for, you know, all the time. Here, I'm going to move them up 10 years, and we're going to show, you know, where they are. And then I'm going to move them up another 15 years. And it's been interesting, and the storylines are, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're serious. He's dealt with issues like cancer, and he's dealt with issues like dementia and things like that. Well, anyhow, the creator is a guy named Tom Badiuk, who... Um, it started out in Akron, Ohio, and he has announced that at the end of the month he's wrapping up the comic strip and and after fifty years he's going to be ending the daily comic strip he says he's going to maybe publish some new stories and stuff on on his website but he but he 's backing away from this after fifty years and i admit i i'm sort of i'm very bummed out he's he's wrapping up this thing, but it's been a part of my you know daily reading you know that just just on a daily basis you check in and and some of the strips are more interesting than others and some of the storylines are more interesting than others but you get to know the characters and you get to relate to the characters and you want to see what's going to happen and now 30 days from now after 50 years these this, this comic strip is going to go away and w- will i get over it yeah but do i have this sense of disappointment about that absolutely I love these comic strips and I have some regular comic strips that I, I read on, on a daily basis for me, you know, hands down, I like funky winkerbean and uh, it's just, I, I can see that they're starting to wrap up storylines and things like that. And I'm a little bit bummed out now that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not going to still continue to read comic strips and stuff, but even to this day, and, and maybe it's just a throwback to when I, I was a kid, but I, I've loved these comic strips and I, I continue to this day to start my day reading the funny papers. Somebody, somebody says, what about Crankshaft? It's a spinoff. Yes, it is. The Crankshaft uh, comic strip is going to be continuing. That is my understanding. But, um, and they say that some of the funky winkerbane characters might be making appearances and crossovers. But, yeah, I admit, I, I'm addicted to the comic strips. Let's talk to Dave in Pewaukee. Dave, you're on WTMJ.
3: Hi, Jeff. How are you doing?
2: Good. Okay, you love the comic strips? My
3: favorite com- My favorite comic here is Prince Valiant. I've been reading that forever.
2: Do they still do they still this is a dumb question. Do they still even do they still have Prince Valiant? Is it just on Sundays or Online. Okay. Online. online. Yeah. Yep. Well, yeah. No, I there's
3: a half a dozen that I read during the week.
2: Yeah, no, thanks for calling. No, I, I, um, right, and, and Prince Valiant, of course, has been around forever. And I remember that the, the intense, you know, I used to read that a lot. I used to read it when it was in the local newspaper. But right now, I mean, a lot of stuff you, you can just find online. Uh, let's see, Jeff, I remember reading the last Calvin and Hobbes. The emotion was on a par with a loved one dying. I can feel it now. It was wrenching. A testament to the depth of touch the comic reached. Yeah, Calvin and Hobbes, um, that was an incredibly popular one as well. And I understand from the perspective, well, in the case of the guy that writes Funky Winkerby, he's 75 years old. He's been doing this for 50 years. And there is, I, I'm sure there's, a lot of pressure he's not the artist he's the creator and he, i think he then they have said so apparently the guy who's the artist who actually drew them said that he wanted to retire so he figured out that this was a good time to do it and i'm sure that the daily grind of having to produce new material seven days a week you know 365 days a year i'm sure that 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 that's hard for people jeff i certainly have my favorite comic strips crankshaft zits luann i like luann Family service, a circus, and I used to love Beetle Bailey and Peanuts. Well, everybody loves Peanuts. Jeff, for me, it's either Dilbert or Garfield. Uh, Jeff, for me, it's Pearls Before Swine. Yeah, Pearls Before Swine, that's, that's one that you have there as well. Jeff, I've completely lost touch with comic strips, but back in the 70s, I loved John Darling, which looked fun, made fun at all the media moguls and celebrities of those days. Well, John Darling, that comic strip was by the same guy that does Funky Winkerbean. Uh, Jeff, for me, Calvin and Hobbes. Absolutely loved it. John in Wapaka. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
3: Hey there. Uh, I was going to say uh, definitely uh, Charles Schultz and Peanuts is my favorite comic strip, but I did want to add I interviewed uh, Tom Baddock years ago about uh, Funky Winker Bean, and oh. he was such a great guy, and he actually sent me a a, a sketch for uh, my wife's uh, wedding with me. So, uh, <laughs> oh. with, uh, with the character. So, just a wonderful person.
2: Oh, that's great. Thanks, And, and again, it's I just, I I mean, I don't know what it is about these these comic strips and the characters that connect to you, but I mean, he was ahead of his time because again, he did some of these time jumps. Some of the comic strips, Peanuts, and I I love Peanuts, but Peanuts they 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 were perpetually young. He decided, look, I I want to I want to show these characters growing up. I don't I don't I don't want to do fifty years of. These are the same people, and they're stuck in high school. I want to take them through life, and sometimes that, that had a degree of tragedy. Some people said the comic strip was depressing from time to time. I never found it that way. I just enjoyed it. But in any event, um, if, you're, if you love your favorite comic strip, keep loving it, because you never know when it might end. For me, Funky Winker Bean pulling the plug at the end of the month.
1: At the end of December, that is. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Ten words to start off. Stop whining and play ball. You
2: overpaid you-know-what's. I I am fascinated by this story about Major League Baseball and the reality, at least I, I think a real chance, that you're going to have hockey in the summer, you're going to have a resumption of the NBA season in some form in the summer, and you are going to have no baseball season this summer, as unbelievable as it is, because the players, they're not happy with Well, only making $7 million for the highest paid players. This is really an amazing story. Let me kind of walk you through the background on this. Owning a Major League Baseball team is, in many respects, it is a license to print money. Sometimes, and I've said this before, I cringe a little bit when you have the story saying, oh, the Brewers lost this amount of money this year. They just made a little bit of money. Because the, the, the bottom line, if you own a Major League Baseball team, you know, when when you sell that team, you are going to make a fortune. You know, you, you buy a team for $400 million, and then 15 or 18 years later, it's worth over a billion. That That's an incredible return on your investment. And, and, yes, it might be that to operate the team, you take a little bit of a loss in a given year. But that, to me, is like saying, gee, I, I bought a house in 1982 for 200000 I, I sold it in, you know, 30 years later for $900,000, and there was a year where I had to put a new roof on it or there was a year I had to put a new furnace on it. The the bottom line is owning a home in many areas, owning a a Major League Baseball team, it is an appreciating investment and there may be certain years that you you do better than others but at the end of the day when you ultimately get ready to ready to divest yourself of the asset you are going to make a ton of money. So there's only so much sympathy I have for the owners. Having said that though, what is going on right now, and the fact that we don't have an agreement for the players to come back and play baseball is absolutely appalling, and I lay it on the hands, on, at the feet of the baseball players. So here, here is the deal. The season was supposed to start at the end of March. Remember all that? And then, of course, you had the pandemic that hit, and what happened is – Spring training just suspended. The original plan was let's send the play, we'll keep the players together. Hopefully, we'll be able to start. And then they were talking about maybe Memorial Day. Now the the plan is the the Fourth of July or around the Fourth of July. You play an eighty-one game season, so you play half of the year. When when this was originally worked out. Back in the beginning, back in spring training when they shut it down, the owners went to the Players Association and said, Okay, here's what the deal is. We are willing to prorate the salaries. So let's assume that we only have half a season, you know, we'll we'll still pay you your full salary for half that season. Okay, it, it made it made sense at the time. The one thing that wasn't on the table though, and wasn't considered was what happens if you're going to play the games But you're not going to be able to have fans in the stands. So you're not going to be making revenue from parking. You're not going to be making revenue from tickets. You're not going to be making revenue from concessions. Well, at that point in time, you know, it's not fair to say, okay, we're still going to pay you your full salaries for on a prorated basis because the owners aren't getting the money in. There, there's a, a really interesting interview with Mark Atanasio, who I think is a really straight shooter in, in the journal Sentinel today, and here's what he explains. He says, okay, the industry has approximately $9.4 billion in revenue, so let's round it up, let's call it $10 billion. If we only play half a season, that revenue is only $5 billion. Only five billion. But you get the idea. But then this is the key. Mark Atanasio says forty percent of that revenue is live gate related. In other words, the the money that's spent by the fans and the tickets. So if you play the game without fans, all right, you, you take away two billion dollars and now you're down to to three billion. You know, still a, a lot of money, but nowhere near what you would normally be getting. He said the exact number that's been calculated by the league is that if we play 81 games without fans, we we get 2.85 billion dollars. So he says very quickly you go from 10 billion to 5 billion for half a season with no fans and only 60 percent, and that's what you've you've got. And of course, it's it's more extreme for. Uh, Teams in small markets where you don't have the huge TV contracts and you don't have the huge revenue contracts. So what the owners are saying is, look, we can't pay you your full salaries under your contracts for half of the season because... We're we're not going to be getting you know the the revenue that we anticipated. We're going to be getting substantially less than that. So what the owners have done is they've rolled out a deal where they've proposed a, a sliding revenue scale, and this is very similar to maybe what's going on in in, in your place of work, where. Um, and, look, a lot of people have been furloughed. I mean, I'm just looking at what you've got half a million people in Wisconsin alone who have either lost their jobs or they've been furloughed. Many, many, many others, as a condition of keeping their jobs, have seen their, their pay reduced. You know, maybe it's been, you know, and, and typically what happens at companies is that when they do salary reductions or pay reductions, the people that make the most money, and I, this is fair, I guess, take the biggest hit. So maybe if you you know if you're one of the top ten percent, you know maybe you take a twenty percent pay cut, and then maybe there's people that take a fifteen percent pay cut, and there's other people that take a ten percent pay cut. But that's kind of how they do it in the real world. That it's a sliding scale in order to keep the business open. That is what the owners are proposing. They're saying, look, we we can't just pay you your contracts on a prorated basis because we've lost all this income. So their deal is, you know, what we're going to do is we're looking at playing 82 games, we're going to group players into tiers based on on salary. Just like in the real world, you know again that the top 20% of earners, maybe they take a 20 or 25% pay cut, the next 30% take a 15% pay cut. You know, you can play with the numbers. So what they say is here here's the deal. Players are going to be grouped into tiers, and the the bigger pay cut is going to come percentage-wise from the people in the higher tiers. Um, A player whose contract is set to pay him $35 million for the whole season would receive almost $8 million. So it's a substantial Cut. There's no question about it. It's not half. Half of seven. Half would be 17.5 million. So you're only getting eight million dollars. I say only getting eight million dollars. But you know you're, you're only playing half a, a season, and it's in front of empty stands. A player pay, making one million dollars would get 434,000. So it, it's still, in the scheme of things, I would argue that yes, it is a million better than 434,000. It sure is. But 434,000 is nothing to sneeze at. Just ask the people who are driving delivery trucks for Amazon or UPS who are working for like nine or 10 or $12 an hour at Walmart or at Metro Mart or all those things. Ask them what they think about 434,000 to play baseball for a couple months, you want to talk about players being completely and totally tone deaf on this one. First of all, it, it is it is a game. We miss it. I'm a huge baseball fan. Look, I I, I cannot wait, and I'm, I'm really hoping that they can kind of get their act together. But I mean, I when you look at the economics of this, I, and you you break it down, and I thought Mark Ottenasio did a great job of saying this. Look, th- this is what the revenues for the industry is, and, and yes. We wanted to pay people on a prorated basis, but that was assuming that we had fans in the stands and paying for parking and buying concessions and all that stuff. Well that we've lost that. So, you know, we're you know, we're we're probably maybe even going to lose money if we end up having to pay these full prorated salaries. And you know what, Major League Baseball players, you, you've got a short lifespan as far as a a professional career. Do you really want to go a year without getting any money at all? Now, now maybe for the highest paid players, that's not going to be a big deal. But don't you also understand how this looks? No sympathy for Major League Baseball players. And I'll tell you, if if they decide to sit it out because they don't want to agree to this sliding scale plan, I, I think this is going to hurt baseball for years. Jeff Wagner, Paul Ryan here. Hey, congratulations, 25 years at TMJ, that's amazing. It seems like yesterday you were just running for attorney general and just getting started in this job. Look, I just wanna say this, Jeff Wagner has been a voice of reason, a soothing voice and a respite for people in the afternoons in all of southeastern Wisconsin for a quarter of a century. We're gonna miss you. We're gonna miss who you are, how you sound, and what you've done uh, for all of us in our community. Then take it from me. Retirement's a pretty cool thing because there's all these other things you can do with your life. I'm excited for you. Thank you, and God bless. So very glad to have you with us. All right. The final Jeopardy answer is, what is pickleball? The question? The question is, what is the fastest growing sport in the United States currently? And the answer is, what is pickleball? Um, if you if you haven't played, well, let me, let me just back up. Pickleball actually dates back to the 1960s, but what happened is its popularity just went through the roof during COVID as more people discovered the sport, which is often um, played outdoors. In 2021, they estimate that there were 4.8 million people who played pickleball. That's up 39% from 2019. And one of the things that's been going on is that it, to, to answer the demand for pickleball, what you have is that more residential communities are rushing to either build pickleball courts or to retrofit tennis courts to accommodate the influx of players. And the way it works is you could take a single tennis court and you can By, by adding lines and nets, you, you can turn a single tennis court into four pickleball courts. That, that's kind of how it works. And, and, you know, at one point in time, tennis was the rage, not so much anymore. Now it, it's, it's pickleball. Now, if you haven't ever played pickleball and I, I, okay, I've got a, I've got a pickleball racket and I've got a paddle, I guess. And a pickleball itself is, is sort of like a wiffle ball is how I would describe it. And, Pickleball is a combination of I don't know, tennis and ping pong and I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe racquetball or so. But it's played again on, on a court that's a quarter the size of a regular tennis court. You can play it one person versus one person or you can play it in, in teams, and you 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 bounce the like the wiffle ball and you hit it over the net and you both kind of run up to the net and you kind of volley it back and forth. That's that, that's that's sort of how you, you do it. My wife and I took we we actually took a couple pickleball lessons last summer and she she actually kind of liked it more more than i did but part of the appeal is again you you're not running like you are in tennis so as you get older and you you've got you know your knees are starting to give out and your ankles are starting to give out and stuff it's just it's it's a lot easier to play <clears throat> and it's kind of a just like sort of ping pong but you're outside it's it, it's kind of fun. Any, anybody can play it. There, you don't have to cover a lot of ground. You just have to have the reflexes enough to kind of bang this thing, you know, back and forth. You don't spend a lot of time, you know, like tennis sometimes, you are know, chasing courts. Hey, girl, throw me the ball from two courts over. And it has become incredibly, incredibly popular. Now, the problem, to the extent there's a problem with pickleball, it is twofold. First of all, you got people that love tennis who hate the fact that, that their courts especially like a lot of these public courts are, are being taken over and converted from tennis courts to pickleball courts because there's a lot more demand for people to play pickleball than there is to play tennis. The second thing that causes people to <clears throat> complain is that people say pickleball is a lot louder than, than tennis is because there, there's a lot more contact. You know, you've got, okay, first of all, you've got four tennis court pickleball courts for every tennis court and You've got, in many cases, you've got four players that are playing. So instead of two or four players on one tennis court, you've got sixteen people. It could be that are, that are playing pickleball, and so they're they're banging the ball back and forth. So you get a lot more of the funk, 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 funk that's going back, and a lot of neighbors complain that my God, you know, pay, people play pickleball from you know seven o'clock in the morning, and they play, you know, if, if there's lights on, they they play till nine or ten o'clock at night, and this is huge annoyance. And so you have the, this huge. War that's going on, huge story in the Wall Street Journal today and the New York Times last week. Pickleball is expanding. Tennis and neighbors are mad. Now, like I say, I stopped playing tennis a long time ago. Um, I did when I was a kid, but I stopped playing tennis a long time ago. But when it comes to you know pickleball, we we've started to play it. My wife, like I say, likes it a little more than me. But there's no question that um we we we've we i i mean i get it i i like it i mean i understand why people would could play um my reflexes are still okay so i was actually pretty good at it the couple times that we've done it and i can certainly see myself playing this more my question is is this a fad or is this going to be a sport that continues to grow in popularity and it's growing in the face of, again, tennis players who don't like the fact that their courts are being taken over, and it's growing in the face of lots of, like, neighbors in some of these communities that object to the fact that you're getting the noise all in all. Is pickleball pickleball a fad, or is this here to stay? For a variety of reasons that we're going to get into, I don't think this is a fad. I I think, and I have seen fads, but I think this is something that... well, while, while people still get injured playing pickleball, there's no question. A lot of people like try to back up and they fall, but I think this is, I think this is kind of the wave of the future because as people age, this is a way that you can continue to engage in an outdoor quote unquote sport. Um, but it's, it's a lot easier on the body in most cases than tennis is. So pickle, pickleball players, is this, is this for real or are we looking at a fad?
1: Hey, Jeff, former producer Sam here. I just wanted to congratulate you on 25 years here at WTMJ. And thank you for being so open and kind and showing me the ropes around here for about four months. Uh, Short but sweet. So, yeah, go live it up in Florida with Fran and you will be missed. Thanks so much.
2: Three people are asking me, where does the name Pickleball come from? Okay, well, there is a controversy in this. Here's as here's, near as I can figure out. In the summer of 1965, Pickleball was founded by Joel Pritchard, Bill Bell, and Barney McCallum on Bainbridge Island, Washington. Within days, uh, the wife of Joel, Joan Pritchard, had come up with the name Pickleball, a reference to the thrown-together, leftover non-starters in the pickle boat of crew races. Many years later, as the sport grew, a controversy ensued when a few neighbors said that the, they were there when Joan named the game after the family dog Pickles, although there is a controversy because some people say, no, Pickles didn't come till afterwards, and Pickles was named after the game Pickleball. So choose it. In any event, it's, it, I mean, you think about, like, badminton and ping pong and tennis all kind of thrown together, and and that's it. Let's talk to Ken. Uh, Ken, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
5: Hi there. How are you?
2: Good. Is this a fad?
5: huh. No, it's not a fad. Um, I come from a racquetball background, a highly competitive 35 years of playing racquetball, and I can't do that anymore. I can't play at that level. My body just won't allow it. But pickleball allows you to play, be competitive. You can play till you're much older. Um, mm-hmm. Your body doesn't ache as bad. Uh, arthritis, you know, whatever. Um, No, it's not a fad. It's going to be here for quite a while.
2: You know, the other thing I think about pickleball, and obviously with your background, you're probably quite good at it. But it's it's not that hard a game to learn. And what I found is that, you know, pretty much anybody can play it. I mean, it's, you know, tennis, you need a certain degree of speed and power and things like that. Same thing true with racquetball. Uh, Pickleball, you know, you've got the paddle, and, you know, you just move the paddle back and forth, and as long as your reflexes are okay, almost anybody can play the game and have fun.
5: Oh, I agree. I agree. I I do teach it uh, from time to time, and some of the people that come to the club for lessons they' uh, it, it's tough for them to pick up but they eventually do so yeah. I agree that it is an easier game to learn
2: yeah no thanks to call and one of our texts saying <clears throat> well here pickleball takes less athleticism and endurance and it can be played by people who are well into their senior years it also takes up far less space it can also be played indoor I think it's it's here to stay and I I, I actually I, I mean, I agree. I mean, Ken's a perfect example of that. You know, if you grow up playing racket sports and stuff like that, but you get to the point where, okay, I can't do racquetball anymore, or I I can't really do tennis, but I, I can go do pickleball and I can end up having fun. Let's talk to um, let's see Don in da- da- downtown. Don, you're on WTMJ.
8: Hey, good afternoon. Um, it's really not a fad. I think it's so. There's a wonderful community um, of players, and depending on their attitude, it can be a lot of fun if it gets. Some people, especially in, if you travel to warm weather states, can be pretty competitive. Mm-hmm. It depends what you want. But as a as a marathon runner, this is a great segue into something else. Um, however, it's not the yeah. best exercise if there's a lot of people waiting.
2: Yeah, but it, but again, I think, I, I guess my response to pickleball was, I, I'm not sure I necessarily went into it doing exercise. It was more like, oh, this seems like something fun to do. And we were playing it with a couple other couples and things like that. And it's it, it's... You you can play the games relatively quickly, so it's not like you're having to commit a couple hours. It's not like you're committing four hours for a round of golf or something. It's like, oh, let's play pickleball a little bit, and then let's sit and have a drink or something. I thought it was a great social activity as well.
9: There's no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. You you nailed it.
2: (laughs) Right. No, no, I I think and that's that's the case. Plus, again, it it takes up less space. And I I think for these tennis players who are – opposing this it's kind of like man you just need to start embracing this pam and appleton pam you're on wtmj good afternoon
4: good afternoon how are you
2: i am well thank you you a pickleball fan
4: i am um i just got in the car and heard you talking about the reason i love it is we play up north when we go up with our family and my we so usually I have like a dozen people playing, and we just kind of round-robin people in and out. But my 20-year-old nephew will play, and my 82-year-old dad will play. Yeah. So I think it covers all ages, and it's very social, and it's quick. And yeah. we it, actually traveled to Florida, and you could bring your pickleball racks in our suitcase that we did and met some people on the courts down there and played, and yeah, and, and, yeah I think it's around.
2: Yeah, and it's not, I mean, it's not like golf for example again and I, I'm, a, I'm a golfer I love it but you know golf you you can drop thousands of dollars on clubs and balls and things like that you know pickleball rackets I, I, I you know I, I we probably don't have the highest end ones but I, I think for the balls and for all the stuff you know it was like 30 or 40 bucks you know was something like that and 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 I think I could have gotten cheaper ones so it's it's cheap it's easy to get into and again it's pretty much anybody can play it
4: Yes, which is very nice. Yeah, my dad used to play racket, but at eighty-two, he doesn't yeah. move as quickly as he does anymore, and it's nice that he can play with his grandkids. So
2: yeah, and my guess is he beats he his, my guess is he beats his grandkids from time to time.
4: Well, maybe depending <laughs> on his
2: team, he is. Fair, fair enough. Thanks, for the Call now. I think it's here to stay. <laughs> hey, Jeff. This is Charlie Snell, your producer from about May of twenty twenty-two to May of twenty twenty-three. It's been amazing working with you, learning how to do radio, learning how to produce, making all the fabulous imaging that you've worked with for the past uh, year or so and I wish the best for you in your retirement whether it's just taking it easy or getting back into being a lawyer. All the best. Love you. A number of us were surprised yesterday with the news conference that Governor Walker had at five o'clock in the afternoon announcing that he was dropping out of the race. I um, I, I tell you, I, I began hearing rumblings of that sometime in in the middle of the show yesterday, I mean, I think it was a very, very well-kept secret. I We didn't talk about it because I just didn't have an opportunity to run it down. And then it, it, as the afternoon wore on, it, it became more apparent that this was going to happen. But Governor Walker in a relatively terse statement yesterday, simply saying that he was suspending his campaign for president, which means he was dropping out. Um, a couple comments about that, and then I, I want to be kind of forward-looking. Um, I... I, I, in many respects, I think this is too bad. I've known Scott Walker for over 20 years. Um, I think he is an incredibly decent man. I think he's got—he uh, is in many respects a man of vision, and I, I think he's got a lot of ideas which would be very, very good for the country. His his campaign, I think, was very, very much hurt by a number of things. But first of all, circumstances beyond his control. I, I think the the fact that there were 15, 16, 17 candidates running made it difficult for Walker to to essentially stand out in in that 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 mass of candidates, I think the Walker plan was always kind of um, hang around, set himself up as the alt as the alternative to what who people believe was going to be the front runner Jeb Bush, and then you know at the the end you know Walker Jeb Bush maybe one or two other candidates, and then you know establish yourself as the the superior alternative to them. The fact that you had so many candidates, I think hurt that strategy. If there were a lot fewer, I think it would have been easier for Governor Walker to stand out. I think also his, and I don't say this in a bad way, it's just, it is what it is. Scott Walker has never been the most dynamic or forceful of speakers. He's got forceful, dynamic, and in my opinion, forward-thinking ideas But that doesn't necessarily translate into, gee, I'm going to take over a room. And he was in a room with some very, very forceful, um, some would say bombastic speakers. And I'm thinking of not just of Donald Trump, but of others as well, who kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room. And, you know, once Walker started losing momentum, it was difficult to get it back. And at the same time, I mean, let's let's be honest. Um, some of the national pundits are saying they're just convinced that the governor wasn't ready for prime time yet. And you, you can understand where that's coming. I'm from. I was watching this campaign from the outside, and I'm thinking, where where is the Scott Walker that I know? I mean, I, I mean it, it started, and Hondo, you will remember. I, as a matter of fact, I got some heat for this, but you know, he goes to Iowa, and of course, Iowa. The Iowa caucuses are, are driven in many respects by corn farmers. And so, you know, he he ends up taking a version of the ethanol pledge. Okay, the, the Scott Walker that I have known has always been against the ethanol mandate. And I thought it was a very, very bad sign when, you know, he's in Iowa and all of a sudden, well, he, he's not in favor of the ethanol mandate. And I kind of, I sort of chalk that up to, it's kind of like when Barack Obama was running for office and he didn't think gay marriage was a winning issue, and so he said he was against gay marriage. Well, I, I never believed that Barack Obama was against gay marriage, and you know I just thought he was lying, stretching the truth, taking a position of convenience, whatever you want to say, in order of, for political expediency. And I guess that's what I was kind of chalking up Walker's position on that as well. Okay, that's why he's talking about ethanol. He doesn't really believe it. But then... Then it started to go to other issues as well. And and one of the things we found is that, you know, I think the governor was, I don't know, pushed into more and more extreme positions um, in an effort to try to cut through the clutter and try to be heard. And the more positions he took, positions that I'm not really sure he he really believed in his heart of hearts. Um, I mean, I understand the phrase some people have used is trying to out-Trump Trump, Trump. but the more he did that, the more I think he got away from the the Scott Walker that many of us, you know, admire and, you know, have supported over the years. I, I guess... Was I surprised at the suddenness of the decision? Yes. Am I surprised at the outcome? No, because, you know, the, the reality is, you know, once the poll numbers start to fall, it's very, very difficult, especially with this field of candidates there. It's very, very difficult to kind of get the momentum back. And Scott Walker is nothing else other than a pragmatic guy. There's no question in my mind. See, some candidates will run for president and they will amass incredible debts in doing so and then that debt they they just drag it around for the rest of their lives or their entire political career. I, I there was no question in my mind that Scott Walker, he's too smart, too savvy a politician, and too um fiscally Conservative, some might say tight <laughs> to, to do that he just he wasn 't going to to do that, and I think when it became apparent that the fundraising sources were starting to dry up, that was the time he was going to get out he, he wasn 't going to borrow money he wasn 't going to amass the, these huge debts to keep the campaign running, so he, he gets out of this now. Um, he's, you know, he's being savaged in the national media. And I know that there's a lot of people on the left who are just, you know, gleeful that, you know, he's been eliminated and thinks that, you know, that this is the greatest thing in the world that Walker is out of the race. Um, that, that might be, and, and I understand that, you know, if, if you view him as your enemy, Okay, maybe you can, you know, take some pleasure or satisfaction in the fact that your enemy is, you know, not going to be elected the next president of the United States. But I think the question now becomes, you know, where does Scott Walker go from here? He's got three years left on his term. He's in his mid forties. He is a young man. Um, he could easily You know, run for president again four years from now or eight years from now. He could easily, um, you know, run. I mean, he's got three more years as governor if he decides to serve out his term. And then he could certainly run again. You've got overwhelming Republican majorities in both the Assembly and the Senate. Scott Walker has squandered, and I'm just going to be honest here, um, the, the attention to the presidential campaign, the fact that he's been gone as much as he's been, um, starting in, uh, essentially after he got reelected governor last year, um, that has hurt him. His poll numbers are not good right now in Wisconsin. But, again, we're... There's a long way to go between now and the end of his term in, you know, January of 2019. He's got plenty of time to turn it around if he wants to, if he wants to do that. And I guess my question is, where does Scott Walker go from here? And do you think, do you think he can turn around his popularity in Wisconsin? Um, Or, or is he done in Wisconsin? There's no question his time and energy. I think over the course of the last, well, the better part of the last year, ever since he was reelected governor last November, has been devoted towards running for president. He's been traveling the world. That that dream ended yesterday. So now, what what happens next? Let's start with Sue in Cedarburg. Sue, good afternoon.
4: Yes,
7: thank you. Um, Scott Walker needs to come back and be the governor that we elected him to. I think he's been out and about too much, uh, hmm. running for president, and he's lost touch with his constituents. I think when he gets back and is the governor
4: we elected him for, he hmm. will do great.
2: Um, do you, would you like to see more initiative? I mean, are there things that you think he needs to continue to do, more initiatives that you want to see, that type of stuff?
4: I'd just like him to do what's best
7: for Wisconsin, mm-hmm. whatever he thinks that is, and whatever his constituents think that it, that is. Yeah. but he's a great governor, and um, I'd like him to continue to be a governor yeah. and not out running around being a president.
2: Well, or, I think uh, <laughs> right thanks I think that's the option now that, that, I think that's pretty much it. And look, and I think this, this is I think it is fair to say, um, I believe that see the budget. I do not believe that the the budget was necessarily as controversial as it was made out to be. But the fact is that the governor was distracted. Uh, Scott Walker was off running for president. He wasn't the one that was personally selling a lot of elements of the budget. And and if, if he was... I think it would not have been anywhere near as, as bloody as it ended up being. But a lot of the, the heavy lifting got left to members of the legislature and things like that. I guess, I, and I, so I, I know what you mean. And I think it's, I think he was in fact distracted. How could you not be distracted when you're trying to run a national campaign? Now, having said that, again, I, I think he's got a lot of time. I mean, for, for people who are writing his political obituary, if, if he chooses to remain in politics, um, you know, th- this is the perfect time for this. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's just like the first term. You do the really, really big, bold, controversial stuff, you know, early on in your term, and then, you know, you let things subside. But I, I do think I do think he's got some fences to mend. Chris in Menominee Falls. Chris, you're on 620 WTMJ.
4: Hi, Jeff. Hi, Chris. Um, I agree with the first caller. There are uh, so many of us who volunteered, whether it was checking recall signatures, Mm -hmm. or standing on corners, or going door-to-door, or making phone calls. And it was different than just politics as usual. It was so contentious. Uh, Many of us have damaged relationships with friends and family members as we decided that Scott Walker was worth it and we were going to, you know, step across that line and do all we could. Right. We we need him back here. We we worked hard for this. i think he needs to somehow you know thank us by coming back and doing the job that mm-hmm. we want for him to do
2: yeah so you're not you're not ready to write him off you don't think he should resign from the governorship you you want to you want him to just like let's let's forget about these last seven or eight months and <laughs> let's just go on from here
4: exactly and i think we have plenty to do in the state in terms of bringing businesses back yep. and increasing jobs and yep. there, there's still
2: plenty of work to do here. Oh, there, no, thanks. No, there, there's absolutely no no question a, a about that. There's a, a lot of work to do. Now, one of the issues is, um, you know, how do they, what, What's the old cliche, you know, how do they keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? I, I mean, I guess the question becomes, after you, you've been through as much as Governor Walker's been through over the last five years, and you've had the ups and downs and all that, um, are, are you still energetic? Are you still, you know, charged up uh, about... About being governor of the state of Wisconsin, um, my guess is yes. My guess is yes, but I guess that's one of the things that time will tell. But you're exactly right. There, there's certainly a lot of work to be done here, and I, I think a lot of uh, I think we've only kind of started to scratch the surface as far as you know getting Wisconsin on the right track. Let's talk to um, let's see Dwight in Sheboygan. Dwight, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my Hi, call. Dwight.
9: Um, you know, Walker's done such a great job of uh, undoing all the Doyle mess. Uh, what he could do is two things. One, he could make sure we don't get stung by uh, executive action in Wisconsin like we have in Washington.
8: Mm-hmm.
9: And the second thing he, he could do is a, uh, an encore to run against Tammy and, and uh, take that uh, Senate seat
5: and try to work that way.
2: When's that, when's that, is that 2018? That's when she's up, I think, 2018. Uh, Well, you know, I, I, I think, I think right now, uh, the last, the honest to God last thing on Governor Walker's mind is, is running for, you know, another, running, (laughs) running running another race. I mean, because effectively he has been really, he has been campaigning for uh, one office or another, literally probably since 2010. And my guess is that, that right now, That's the farthest thing on on his mind. If again, off the top of my head, if Tammy Baldwin's up in 2018, that would be you know when the governor would be up for re-election, or I you know, and again, one of the other decisions, and I I know that there's a lot of people, a lot of speculation, was that he, regardless of how the presidential race turned out, he was ready to step down as governor and go make some money, go work for a conservative think tank, or you know, be a pundit or something. I'm not, I'm not convinced. That that's I don't know that I think you're going to see that happen. I I think I think what's going to happen is he's going to come back rededicated. Now he might need to take a breather for a little bit, but I think he's going to come back rededicated to the, be the best governor he can be. We continue the conversation. What do you want to see Scott Walker do? Where does he go from here? Our last caller, Dwight, said, "Well, maybe you should run against Tammy Baldwin." I'm trying to. I'm trying to imagine if somebody said that in the presence of Mrs. Walker, Jeanette, she'd probably take a frying pan to you. It's like, what? <laughs> you know? Um, and, again, that's, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's really, I mean, he's not a year into his second term as governor, so there's a long time out there. Let's talk to Doug in go Doug, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Hello. What do you think?
8: Uh, I, he's going to have to work a little bit to get back in my good grades, mm-hmm. and, and I'm a person who would have. For, for the first time in my life, I put up a yard sign.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: I mean, I would have walked through broken glass for the guy. But the thing that really soured me was the casino decision. Now, mm-hmm. hear me out. It's not because he made his decision that he did. It's that we got nothing mm-hmm. out of it. We got nothing out of that negotiation. It mm-hmm. should have been a negotiation. Governor Doug would have sat down with a pot of water. Because I know he didn't like gambling. Fundamentally, he doesn't like. He's a religious man. He doesn't really care for gambling that much. Could have sat down with the Potawatomi and said, listen, if I block the casino in Kenosha, I want you to fund the arena. Mm -hmm. We can call it the Potawatomi Arena. We can even maybe see what hoops we need to jump through to put on a win Mm -hmm. for some kind of addition where they could have gambling there. But we got nothing out of it, and he made the announcement. and The next day, he goes and talks to the fundamentalists over in Iowa. It really soured me. So
2: I you think, think it we was
8: could have gotten more out of that
2: negotiation? And so you link, so you link the two of them. You you think that part of the part of the decision on that K- Kenosha casino question was tied to his presidential ambitions and and wanting to appeal to the evangelical community in Iowa?
3: Yes,
8: I think mm-hmm. he put the interests of his presidential campaign before the interest of
2: the states that he was governor of so he's got some work to do to get your trust back yes okay thanks for no that's and, and I mean I, I I will tell you that that is not how I personally see that the Kenosha casino decision but I, I'm I understand that, that some people do I mean I I think legally there were some real limitations but I mean I understand that some people think that there was there was political presidential politics that were playing out and I, I guess Well, I don't necessarily buy into that. I'm the same guy that says, okay, what's Governor Walker doing going to Iowa and, and taking, you know, talking about, you know, ethanol
1: mandates. Jeff Wagner's 25 year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Good
2: afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Yeah, my, uh, my Labor Day weekend. It was a little bit unusual, as I was saying to Steve and Sandy. About uh, 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning, my phone goes off, and I'm getting a communication from George Malay, who used to be one of the anchors of today's TMJ4. Now he's in Indianapolis. And George and I, we did TV back in the day when I did TV and stuff, and his text said, gee, I, I know you were a huge Jimmy Buffett fan, and I'm so sorry about his passing. And I went, oh my gosh, at which point in time I'm, I'm awake, I'm looking at this, um, sent a note out to my my brother, who was a huge fan as well. And yeah, Jimmy Buffett passing away at the age of 76. Uh, he had been canceling his concerts. Canceled. I was scheduled to see him in Las Vegas last fall. And they canceled that, and then they rescheduled some shows, and then uh, some other shows got canceled again in February. And uh, I, I think everybody knew he was sick. Nobody knew how sick he was, and he ended up passing away because of a, a rare form of skin cancer is what, uh, is what ended up killing him. And I think it's just the, the shock. And I, I was just mentioning this to Steve earlier. It, it's kind of funny how artists you know, are a part of your life. I, I first really started tuning in to Jimmy Buffett in nineteen seventy five when a college roommate of mine brought home a, a Jimmy Buffett record. It was like his third studio album um, and I'm like, wow. And it was really sort of transformative. And back in the day you'd have albums, yes, albums as things on vinyl that would come out every day, every year that is, and they'd kind of you'd see where the artist was in their lifestyle. And I don't know, going on probably fifty records, I was looking at my my iPod. Yes, I still have an iPod. And today and there's there's 713 Jimmy Buffett songs on it, the collection from lots of the albums, not some of the most recent ones. They're stored somewhere else. But it, it's just, it's an amazing life and lifestyle and all. As I was mentioning with Buffett, I think he is underrated as a performer. A lot of people think, oh, it, it's this like beach uh, bum vibe, and you you think about Margaritaville, um, but but actually, if you get into the Buffett catalog, there's a lot of great songs, and you really appreciate what a poet and uh, a songwriter he was, and most of my favorite Buffett songs are not the most quote-unquote popular ones, you know, the ones that have to be played at the different concerts, and if you're looking for an exposure to Jimmy Buffett, um, try one particular, well, we played one particular harbor, but try um, Come Monday, which is Fran and my wedding song, or try a pirate looks at forty, or, or my I think my personal favorite, uh, trying to reason with the hurricane season. But there's so many great song lines. If you follow me on Twitter, I sent out a tweet the other night. Um, in my the den of my house, we have uh, my my wife had, had had an artist we know had prepared. Uh, it's it's like a it's on a, it's on wood it's not really a painting but it's a picture of jimmy buffett's uh, a drawing of jimmy buffett's airplane and then it's got one of my very very favorite song lines from a buffett song called breathe in breathe out move on which i think is just a great way to go through life but it was a it was kind of a difficult weekend and i was hearing i've been hearing from people all all over the country from all different uh, all different portions of my past you know just to talk about Jimmy Buffett. So here's one of the things that we're going to do this week. Now I've told this story before, but this is if you follow us on YouTube, all right, this is my visual aid for the week. You can you can listen to of course on the radio and we appreciate that, but you can also stream the show live. Go to wtmj.com and click on the watch live button, you can click on the listen live button too. But if you want to see it, you can watch live or go to YouTube and click on is wtmj and then you can watch this live. So I've told this story before and it's true and it's kind of okay, if you're a Buffett fan, it's a cult. It's a nice cult, but it, but it's a cult. And there was a period of time, and I just, this is why, if you think you want to be married to me, well, it, it takes a little, it, it takes a little bit going on. So over the years, I collected Jimmy Buffett t-shirts, um, certainly at the different concerts. And like I say, I stopped counting at over 80 concerts. So I have all these tour shirts, but also I would order shirts from like Margaritaville in Key West and Margaritaville in Las Vegas and things like that. And, and I would collect these different tour shirts, And to the point now that my wife will look at these and say, do you realize that you have like over a 100 of these T-shirts? To the point that, so what she's done is, rather than have them all in a closet, and we did have them in an upstairs closet off my office, now what's happened is she she takes like, all of them got like folded up, and I, I have like 15 that are in rotation. And she said, okay, these 15 are the ones that you can wear, for the next six months, and then, you know, we'll go down and we'll bring another 15 different ones up and retire these. So there's this kind of rotation. And I say that, and the the truth of the matter is, when I die, I know that what's going to happen is Fran is going to take all these Jimmy Buffett T-shirts and they're going to put them on the front lawn on, like, clothes racks, and the sign is going to say, Jeff's dead, T-shirts for free. I understand that is exactly what's going to happen. But I, I thought, as a way of acknowledging Jimmy's passing what I'm doing this week, and I, I never wear T-shirts. I mean, I, I you know, I understand it's radio, and even before the cameras and stuff, it, it's just you can't see what we're wearing. But, I, I mean, I'm, I was for a long time I was wearing suits. Now I don't do that anymore. But I, I decided what we're going to do this week is I'm pulling out different Jimmy Buffett tour shirts. These are ones that I bought at the very, purchase of the various shows, and we're going to be wearing one each day. So today... I am wearing, this is a Jimmy Buffett t-shirt from their I Don't Know tour in 2016 and 2017. For, so, for, so, for those of you watching on the air here, we're going to do the visual aid here. That is the front and the back of the t-shirt. We're going to be modeling a different t-shirt every day this week proving see i just I, sometimes i tell these stories and i think people i couldn't see that many shows or you can't really have that many t-shirts no i i do matter of fact the the big one of the big issues this weekend one of the big issues this weekend was okay which which tour shirts do i want to wear and i have one of my favorites is from like the tiki time tour in 2003 and my wife is saying, you're going to look like a pumpkin if you wear that. But I, I'm I'm willing to brave it. So we will be modeling WTMJ, Jimmy Buffett T-shirts on WTMJ for the balance of the week. All right, I want to start off with a sort of Buffett, Buffett-related topic. And it, it's funny. I never met Jimmy Buffett. I, I've met members of the band at like autograph signings. I've run into members of the band at uh, the airport. It, it was telling a true story with Steve and Sandy a couple minutes ago. We saw a show, my brother and I, and my brother is a huge parrot head as well. And, I, he, um, he says I got him into it and it's, it's probably correct. I've I've gotten my brother into a lot of stuff over the years and this, this is probably a good thing, but we had gone out a number of years ago to see a Buffett show in San Diego. And so we're coming back and it was San Diego to Denver and then Denver to Milwaukee. And so we're at the San Diego airport waiting for the plane. And who who should we run into? But a number of members of the Buffett's band who were very, very nice. And, you know, we had a good conversation with them and they, they gave us a bunch of these specialty guitar picks. think to kind of make us go away you know it's one of those things where you go up to him and say I'm not a stalker and it's always when you start a conversation by saying hey I'm not a stalker I I know all sorts of like red flags go up but we had a wonderful conversation with that but I never met Jimmy Buffett but I I felt like I knew him and candidly there's you know the the entire weekend I've been thinking about the, the guy's passing because somebody I didn't know but somebody who I feel has been a part of my life since, again, 1975, whether it's going to concerts or listening to the tunes or, or things like that. And even though I've never met him, it's like, wow, um, I, you, you feel like you've kind of lost a friend. And there's this little this little emptiness that, that is there. I, I My guess is we all have someone in our life like that, you know, somebody that you never met, but who affected you in, in some way, shape, or form, and when that person passes, as people inevitably do, you feel this sense of loss, even though you you never knew them at all. I mean, it's not like. You know, it's not like losing your parents, of course. It's not like losing your spouse. It's not like losing your best friend. It's not like losing, you know, close friends um, over the years. But still, even though it's somebody that you never met, you still somehow go, wow, I can't believe that that person is gone. And my life, glad they were in my life, even though they weren't really in my life. But I'm glad that they were in my life. But I I feel like this little empty void. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is there somebody, celebrity, obviously politician, somebody in your life you never met them, but once you heard about their passing, it just impacted you, and and maybe to this day, I, I was trying to think of of a, of a comparison. My guess is, you know, Elvis Presley. I mean, Elvis, if I know that there were people who just loved, loved, loved Elvis Presley, and he was such a big part of their life. And when he passed away in 1977, my guess is that that there's a void for people, and maybe that void still exists today. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
1: Hey, Jeff, Charlie Sykes here. Congratulations on 20 gazillion years on the radio. You and I both know this sort of thing's a lot harder than it looks, but you've been a consummate pro all these years, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to do next because. Even though we're old guys now, we're still too young to retire, right? But seriously, Jeff, best wishes for whatever you've got planned. Just don't make it a daily radio show.
2: So, I mean, I'm talking to the, the car salesman yesterday, and, and I'm, I I was just looking at the, the midsize and the the full-size versions of, of the SUVs that I was looking at. Now, I didn't want that, but I kept saying, my gosh, this is just a huge boat. And he was saying, yeah, you understand, this is the problem nowadays. You buy this, and you're... You're going you have to realize that for a lot of the angle parking spaces, spaces and parking lots, it it's it's not going to fit or it's only going to barely fit. You know, so you're going to be taking up that whole space. But what that means is you're going to have trouble finding parking places because if if there's somebody on either side of you, you're going to have trouble opening the doors to get out. Jeff, I think it's time to make parking spots bigger and also have um, fewer of. Those, Jeff. I drive a big Ram Four, and I love it. But I' avoiding it to driving it to Milwaukee because parking it is often difficult. Um, I sometimes park drive in a parking lot, ride lot, and then take you know an Uber into the city. You know, one of our texters says, "Oh, Jeff, most condo garages are too small for these big vehicles, so parking outside is necessary. Jeff, I'm a nurse who parks in hospital structures. Believe me, I feel your pain. Same with the seats on airplanes. They're just not made for real people, maybe, maybe kids. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
9: Hey Jeff, this call is probably gonna upset people, but I think those oversized pickup trucks are really annoying. We have two two of them in our underground parking garage at um, at the apartment place where I live, and the trucks frequently like stick out in the aisle can and could easily get like get banged or cause mm-hmm. an accident. Yeah, and I do feel really sorry for the people who have to park next to them every day because they do have very little space and they can easily get door dings. And then the other thing that ticks me off is that when these big pickup trucks are out on the road, it seems like a lot of people don't know how to drive them because they're they're often veering into the next next lane when they shouldn't be. And then if they're stopped at like the median, the median like people sometimes do, they often stick out in the lanes and obstruct traffic. And the other thing is that how many of these people actually have to carry big loads of hay around <laughs> and really need need them? I, I suspect that it's really just a trendy thing. Jeff, don't and, be a and hater. Almost <laughs> sort of like a country and Western thing. Jeff, don't, thanks. No, 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 thanks thanks so. don't be
2: a hater, man. That, don't be a hater. If you want to buy a pickup truck, I get it. But I, I also understand here, here. One of our textures makes a point, Jeff, most people don't have the skills to park in these undersized spots. Well, that's true, too, because, I mean, I, I see that there are a lot of times just flat out over the line but even if they're within the lines you got a problem jeff i'm happy to hear that someone else has the same issue that bugs him as i do i can never turn right at a light because there's usually a giant vehicle next to me and i can't see if cars are coming around from the other side and also backing up in the parking lot it's scary to me i have a small compact car so it's a miracle i've never been hit yeah i mean i have small suvs so it's a little bit bigger um jeff these big vehicles should not plan to come to heartland they repainted the street lines and now you can only fit a small suv in them um yeah i think there's there's an element um to that jeff when i park in the lot of the va there are big trucks parked in spots that say compact cars only you're right about these various spots that are there jeff maybe designate a section for bigger cars repaint the lines Jeff, my first car was a 1970-67 Chrysler Newport. It was 17 feet long, and I could fit nine other friends in it. Mind you, there were no laws about seatbelts or years ago. I cannot believe now how vehicles seem to have been larger than that. Mine was a tank. Okay, I can relate to that because it wasn't my first car. But somehow, this was when I was in college, I'm not complaining because my parents gave me the car to use. Somehow my father purchased a 1970 Chrysler Newport, which was, I know exactly what this guy's talking about. It was the land yacht. I mean, you could you could put an enormous amount of people in it. We would routinely, you know, you had bench seats in the front. You could routinely, you could easily get eight people in, in that car. I mean, it, it was just, like I say, we would call it the land yacht. So I understand it's kind of gone full circle, but you know this is this is just kind of how this whole thing works. Jeff, I see a similar thing in outdoor parking: narrow, shallow, and not much space between the rows, making backing up a little scary. Um, yeah, that's that's it. One of our other texters makes the point of the worst thing is that he, he parks in a space the space next to him is open, but then he comes out and you've got one of those big giant cars that's now parked in the space to the left, so he can't squeeze in to get into the door. I I, I don't know what the answer is. I just, it's getting worse, not better. There's no question about it.
1: Hi, Jeff, Tracy Johnson here. Congratulations on a tremendous career and congratulations on your retirement. Thank you for everything you've done for our community and the impact that you've had on the way we look at the issues think about the news and think about the world. I especially appreciate the opportunity to have worked with you first on TMJ4 and then on 620 WTMJ as a fill-in host. You've given me so many opportunities and I can't thank you enough. You deserve the best that retirement has to offer, time with family and friends, and even on the golf course. So congratulations, cheers, and hit them straight. (laughs)
2: So what's going on? Oh, oh, yeah, we had this thing called an election yesterday. First of all, I, I, I want, for the last four years, I have been publicly eating crow. Because I, I understand I did not see President Trump winning in 2016. And any time we talked about election predictions, many of you would always feel comfortable pointing that out to me. Thank you very much. Also, I, I mean, I, I, I acknowledge it. I was like many of the pundits that got it wrong. I, I will say that based on what we are seeing yesterday... and and what's going on today. I I believe I have redeemed myself. If you go back and listen to the commentary, I first of all, we're gonna talk about all the polls. I did not think this was going to be a landslide, and I said so. I said that I thought Joe Biden would probably eke out a close win and it looks like and we'll discuss this in a little more detail i know it's not what some people want to hear but it looks like that is going to be the case a close win i predicted that there would not be any blue wave at all and as a matter of fact you know i, I saw republican voters coming home in in large numbers and that is precisely what happened when we talk about no blue wave it, it really is incredible especially if you looked at the earlier polls let's put aside the presidential race for a minute everybody Everybody thought that the Democrats were going to pick up seats in the House of Representatives, that there would be long coattails with Joe Biden. In fact, that did not happen, and it looks like they might have lost as many as five seats in Congress. Now, Democrats still have a majority, and Nancy Pelosi will still be Speaker of the House, but any hope that they had of of extending their majority did, did not happen at all. Interestingly, a local note is Donna Shalala, you know, the former chancellor at UW-Madison. She was a first-term congresswoman in South Florida. She, uh, she lost last night, uh, was one of the Democrats who lost their bid for reelection. So Donna Shalala ends up losing. The Republicans pick up about five seats in Congress. Still not a majority, but I think it surprised a lot of people. Earlier on, they were thinking, gee, maybe the Democrats are going to pick up another five, ten seats. Did not happen. In addition, the Democrats thought that they would be able to take control of the U.S. Senate. And it does not appear that that is happening. As it stands right now, going into the night, it was 5347 Republican um, versus Democrat and independents, and Bernie Sanders is technically independent, but he, he, um, he he's part of the Democratic uh, Party conference. So, fifty three forty seven, they needed to swing four votes, or actually three, if Joe Biden ended up winning, because then you'd have the vice president who would be able to break the ties. That does not appear to have happened. As it stands right now... In in called races, and I, I say that because that for some reason some of the networks have been very, very reluctant to make what it seems to me are obvious calls, but right now it's 46 to 46. Um, there's six seats up for grabs, but here's the deal. There's a guy in Alaska, the Republican running. He's ahead 63 to 31. His name is Sullivan. He's going to win. So that's one seat for the Republicans. Susan Collins in Maine. She's ahead 51 to 42. She is going to win. The Democrats thought she was going to get knocked off. That did not happen. So that's two seats. That puts us up to 48. Uh, Purdue in Georgia with 94% of the vote in, he's ahead by about four points. He is in all likelihood going to win. The only thing that would screw that up would be if if somehow he dropped below 50% and there'd have to be a runoff, in which case he'd win. But he's gonna pick that seat up. That's three, that takes you to 50 right there. in North Carolina, Tillis, the Republican incumbent who was viewed as, as being very, very vulnerable, he's ahead by 100,000 votes, uh, about 2.2 percentage points ahead, 100,000 votes, 93% of the vote in. I think Tillis is going to win. That's 51. In addition, there's another Georgia seat that's going to go to a runoff, but that's a heavily Republican state. The Republican um, is going to win that one, but probably not until January. So that's going to be five. And then you've got the race in Michigan where the Republican, um, James, is, is still leading. He's up by about 25,000 votes with 96% of the vote in. That That one might be too close to call, but one way or the other, it looks like... Republicans are going to end up with, best guess, 52 seats, absolute worst case scenario, 51, um, you know, and, and very possible 53, um, very possible just just 53. So there, there was not a blue wave at all when that occurred. In Wisconsin. No, we were hearing all sorts of talk about blue wave. Did not happen at all, despite getting outspent two to one. And this is this is one of the most staggering stories about what happened in Wisconsin. You had the Democrats that were flush with money. I mean, I have never seen spending like you saw on. on, on these various races, you had assembly races where there was over or close to a million dollars put into the race in an effort to try to, I don't know, take out Robin Voss that they spent about a million bucks in trying to defeat Robin Voss. OK, two years ago, he won 60-40 this year, after having about a million dollars spent against him, he wins fifty-eight forty-two. I mean, it's just, it, it was amazing how much money was thrown around. And at the end of the day, after tens of millions of dollars being spent, the, the composition of the state assembly, it went from 63 Republicans and 38 Democrats to 61 Republicans and um, 39 Democrats. So, I mean, it, it, it's just, okay, look at all that money. The state Senate... Again, millions and millions of dollars put into various races. Um, Most of it launched against Republican candidates. Going into the night, it was 1914. 19 uh, Republicans, 14 Democrats. At the end of the night, the Republicans, despite being outspent like two to one, they actually picked up two seats in the Senate. So the Senate is what 21 to 12. The Assembly, 61 to 38. So you, you've got, again, an era of divided government that continues. But if you want to talk about, I, I'm not going to describe like the Democratic consultants as being losers, because that's not the case. They made a fortune. They made an absolute fortune. The losers were the people who decided to give money to people with the idea that it was going to be used tilting at windmills and trying to win a bunch of of these seats. And I guess I wonder next time, two years from now, if you're, I don't know, a Democrat fundraiser and you go around to some of these big donors and you say, hey, I'd like you, we're going to go after, we're going after Robin Voss or we're going to run um, after some assembly candidates or we're going after this state senate candidate or whatever. Will you write me a check for $50,000 or will you donate $100,000 to this political action committee? I might, my first question would be, well, what are you going to do differently this year that you did in 2020 when I re- gave you all this money and you absolutely completely peed it away? Epic fail. So to the extent that there was a blue wave where people were predicting a blue wave, either nationally or on the state level, it did not materialize, which tells me that, first of all, Republicans did come home, and secondly, that, that President Trump, win, lose, or draw, has larger coattails than, than anybody, anybody thought, because the thinking was, President Trump is going to get drubbed, he's going to get beaten big, and he's going to take all these Republicans down with him. That did not happen. Trump outperformed the polls on so many different levels, and on top of that, um, that, I think, helped... Republican candidates to go on and win. So, I, I it, look, I understand. The way it looks now, Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. But on top of that, what you're going to have is you're going to have the Democrats that control the House of Representatives. You're going to have the Republicans that control the U.S. Senate. And, again, it, it, I don't know if it's going to be 51 or 52 or 53. But as I've been saying for the last week or so. In some respects, that might be the best news at all for Joe Biden if Joe Biden becomes president. Why are you saying that, Jeff? Well, it's simple. I believe that Joe Biden is at his heart. He's sort of a a center-left Democrat. He's certainly not an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders. If the Democrats controlled the U.S. Senate and the House, I think Biden would have incredible pressure put on him to move very, very far to the left. Now, with the Republicans controlling the U.S. Senate, that's going to be the check on that. You're not going to have a Green New Deal because you're not going to be able to get it through the the Senate. You're not going to have massive tax increases because you're not going to be able to get it through the the Senate. You are going to have, I, I think everybody wants Everybody wants us to govern. Everybody recognizes that there's things that need to be done, but it's not going to be unchecked with one party in complete control. And candidly, I think that might be one of the best things in the world for Joe Biden because... If you went too far to the left, if you did some of the crazy stuff that I think some of the people in his party were talking about, um, I I think you'd be looking at an electoral debacle two years from now because I continue to believe that this is a center-right country. By having divided government, what you assure is that you're not going to have radical shifts. And candidly, that might not be the worst thing in the world. The stock market today kind of reflecting that the Dow Jones industrial average up 684 points the Nasdaq up 450 that's uh, a four percent increase and and that's factoring in the likelihood that Joe Biden is going to be the next president the likelihood that Republicans are going to control the US Senate and the likelihood that the Democrats are going to control the House of Representatives I think it's kind of a recognition that all right nothing too crazy is going to happen, and I hope I don't have to eat those words somewhere along the line over the course of the next four years. If these results do in fact hold, hey
3: Jeff, this is Steve Kafidi. I want to say first of all, congratulations, 25 years. I remember when I was a kid growing up, listening. No, wait a second, we're the same age almost. I, I'm just kidding. I have enjoyed our relationship. You've been fun to listen to. I do listen to you when I'm going home. I listen to your show. I get great ideas from it. I wish you nothing but the best. You are one of the best, and you're one of the great reasons why WTMJ. And Jeff Wagner show has been so successful over those years. Good luck, my friend.
2: It's 908 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're wrapping up our conversation. A big thing, number one, the controversy involving the horrible, the horrific events in Charlottesville, Virginia, over the weekend, the fights between the protesters and the KKK and white supremacists, and, of course, the controversy over President Trump's remarks. Jennifer, who is calling us from Charlottesville, Virginia. Virginia, uh, Jessica, Jennifer, good morning.
7: Hi, Jeff. How are you?
2: Very well, thank you. You are a transplanted Milwaukeean, huh?
7: I am. I am. I've lived here for about three years now.
2: It is a wonderful community. I have been there on many occasions in my youth.
7: Yes, it is a beautiful, beautiful town. It's
2: great. Am, am I right? Um, in the in my, my my sense is that this this is not being fueled. I understand that the victim was a woman from Charlottesville, yes. but my sense is you have you have protesters or counter-protesters, a lot of people coming in from outside your community um, that were involved in all this stuff over the weekend.
7: Yes, we were as a community for probably at least two or three weeks strongly advised locally to stay away as much as possible from the protesters who were coming in, you know, the KKK, the alternate right, that they were, you know, coming in. They were here to cause trouble. Um, So our sense was that a lot of these people... Either drove in independently or were bused in independently, and um, there was a tensions were exceptionally high. Right. And a lot, even leading up to this, a lot of the um, independent retailers and restaurants were closing in advance of this rally, knowing that um, trouble was probably going to happen. Right. So I, I, I strongly believe that a lot of a lot of this was incited by out of counters.
2: Right, because that—that's certainly the impression I got. Because I've been trying to follow this controversy over the, the Robert E. Lee statue, and my sense is that um, it's—it's it's more of a national issue in some respect than, than a local issue. You know?
7: I, I think so. You know, it, it does make the local news here, but you, when there are protesters, you know, they have some fencing around the statue in the park at the moment. Um, Usually, when there's a protest, I mean, it's a handful of people, at best, who are are, are really concerned with this issue, and me being a transplant and growing up in the North, I I, I don't have a whole lot of skin in the game, I don't have a lot of opinion on it, and Charlottesville itself is largely made up of a lot of transplants because of the university, so... Um, I don't think that their opinion is as strong here as it is being made nationally.
2: So, what's your take on the events and now the, the aftermath of what happened over the weekend?
7: Um, well, my, my, you know, my take is as far as Donald Trump goes. You know, he is I, locally. I think we felt that it was. Um, it took him a long time. to to make any sort of statement. Mm -hmm. And I know that the situation was certainly fluid, but he is, as we know, very Twitter happy and trigger happy when it comes to at least making some statement. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that we were sort of sitting here feeling like, well, perhaps you should have at least come out and said something, especially given that the night before um, that protest around the um, University of Virginia grounds, where we had a lot of torch wielding KKK members, they were surrounding the, tom- the, the, the statue of Thomas Jefferson. A lot of right. students, some of the students were out there protecting the statue, making sure that nothing had happened to it. Um, I felt like you know he should have been a little bit more, pre- more prepared for that. And we are only two hours south of D.C., so right. we're, we're 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 pretty much a hometown for him. Um, I think we're. I can't uh, not not necessarily me, but the town itself is very liberal and progressive. And I don't know if I think a lot of people felt like because it was a liberal, progressive college town, he wasn't as inclined to open his mouth as quickly as he would if this would have been
2: somewhere else. So your complaint, the the criticism you would have is more about timing and the lack of a statement as opposed to necessarily the content of the statement.
7: Exactly. I, you know, I think, you know, if it was me, and I knew that I was under the scrutiny that he is under constantly for not coming out and speaking about, you know, I I think if if it was me, I would have come out and said and denounced the KKK and the alternate right just because.
2: Right. Even preempt, even preemptively, even before this incident happened. Just
7: exactly because. He knows that he's under a microscope. He knows he's going to be scrutinized. He knows everyone's going to wordsmith him. So he should have come out right away and just nipped that in the bud. That's what I would have done. Um, so I think that that's also part of the problem. But you know, I think anything he says is going to be scrutinized.
2: Right. What What's the mood like in Charlottesville yesterday and today?
7: Um, yesterday, I think there was certainly a lot of um, caution. Still, I know that um, one of the the organizers of the rally was out there speaking yesterday, and there was um, a little bit of a kerfuffle with that. Um, I think today everyone is going back to work, and, you know, thankfully there was probably not a lot of damage. Unfortunately, obviously, we know that people lost their lives. That was right. horrible. Um, but as far as, you know, property damage, I think there was it was minor. Um, right. So there's not a lot of... You know, there's just a lot of recovery. This is not a town where things like this really happen.
2: Yep. Well, that, that was the interesting thing, Jennifer, that I was struck by, and, and like I said, I've been to Charlottesville on many occasions. It's not, th- this is not necessarily the place that you would think no. would end up being ground zero in a controversy between white supremacists and um, KKK members no. and counter protesters. That that's just that's not Charlottesville.
7: No, it it is a very peaceful place, and it's a small town. And it, you know, there's maybe about 50,000 people who live here. And everyone gets along very peacefully. And it's a beautiful town. And it's also not set up for, you know, it's, it's an old, early American town. So it's not really set up for the kind of infiltration of a lot of people to come in and cause trouble. And then they get out easily.
4: Mm
2: hmm right it,
7: it's not a big city
2: um yeah jennifer thanks so much for perspective absolutely. and thanks for calling in i really do appreciate it um thank you for
7: taking my
2: call absolutely now that's uh, that's that's jennifer from tra- of transplanted milwaukee and i guess that's i mean I, I wrestle with this whole thing and i guess it's one of these things where you can always monday morning quarterback the the, the situation i i do think, and people say, oh, you're apologizing for Donald Trump. If you're a regular listener to this program, I'm not a Trump apologist. I, I get it from both sides. It's like, well, when I, when I criticize the president for the different things he does, does that I think deserve to be criticized, oh, go work for MSNBC. You're one of these liberals. And then when I try to say, well, I, I think we're overreacting uh, to this thing or that thing, it's, oh, I can't stand you. How can you be such a Trump apologist? And bottom line is, I, I try to call stuff as I see it. In this particular situation, I, I don't I mean, people should be outraged. Over the hate groups, that that's where the outrage should be directed. But I think some people are just you. you want to obsess? Okay, we're going to turn this into a, a Trump thing. And Jennifer makes an interesting point. Maybe in anticipation of this, since there was a build-up, you know, maybe it would it have helped? Would it have been, you know, would we have? Would it have been a calming effect if the president had come out and said something preemptively? Okay, you know, maybe you know, should he have come out in the immediate aftermath? All, all right, w- would that have been would that have been necessarily wrong? You No, but at the same time, I I think that at the time the initial statements were coming out – it was the fog of war, and you're trying to make sure what's going on. And I think he probably did take some lessons from Barack Obama and Barack Obama's comments on Ferguson, which turned out to, in my opinion, be inflammatory and, in some cases, ill-considered. So I, I think the president was trying to be measured, and I understand there's not often that you hear the pres- this president being measured, um, and but he would have been criticized regardless. I think moving forward, rather than obsessing with when is there going to be the hate crime trial. That comes out. I mean, moving forward, I I think, you know, you have to look back and say, are the things that authorities could have done to have minimized the chance of violence? And then, again, recognize that you've got this white supremacist 20 year old nutcase who at the end of the day is the one that's ultimately responsible for this horrible situation. And Maybe that's what we need to be concentrating on instead of worrying about, did the president in making remarks, you know, condemning, you know, hatred and bigotry, was it strong enough? This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.
1: This is the best of Jeff Wagner, highlighting the best moments of a 25-year career on WTMJ.